Um, I like what Nate prayed, which is, uh, in times like this, all we can cling to is Christ. And um, in this time, God cares for us. God is always watching over us. But sometimes it seems like um, we don't feel it as much, maybe. But I want us to know that God is always over us. He's always presiding over us. He's always feeding us. And one of the primary ways that he feeds us is through his word. So we're going to approach it today. Um, For the next few moments, we're just going to dig into it. And we've been going through the gospel of John over the past couple months. And we've been going through the farewell discourse. This is um, Jesus' final words to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. And we're going to read the final portion of the farewell discourse before we move on to his high priestly prayer. Um, so we're going to read John chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. You can follow along in your Bibles, your bulletins, or uh, you can just read along. Uh, it's on the screen right now. This is Jesus speaking. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the Word of God. So as I said, we're going through the Gospel of John right now, and Pastor Michael spoke on suffering and joy last week. And this week I'll be going through the passage in which Jesus speaks about Trouble and peace. And all of these are realities in our life, both suffering and trouble, and also joy and peace. One of my favorite quotes is by Frederick Beekner, and this is what he says Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Do not be afraid. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. And what terrible things have happened in these days? The consensus is that things will get worse in the coming weeks and months. And some of us at IGC were already suffering and we're already experiencing trouble. And if it hasn't come for us yet, there's a very good chance that many of us in our church family will feel it soon. Now, I suppose I don't need to point out the obvious But I want to acknowledge that none of us are exempt from pain in this life and that it has a, this has affected some of you in painful and profound ways already. This is true. Beautiful and terrible things have happened. 
So now we're in a place where Jesus must come through, where when we sing this song, all I have is Christ, we need that to be true, that all we have is Christ, lest we be swallowed up by the despair of our time. So as we look at God's word this morning, my objective for us is to take hold of the peace that Jesus offers. And that as we go another week apart from each other, that we might be strengthened to walk by faith one more week or at least one more day. So to do that, I have three points. And this is in your bulletins. It's, it'll also be, uh, it's, in, it's in your bulletin. So the first one is this, an untested belief. The second point, a real belief. And finally, the peace that Jesus offers. An untested belief, a real belief, and the peace that Jesus offers. So our first point, an untested belief. Now, at this point in the story, Jesus has been teaching his disciples. He's been living with them for more than three years. And the disciples, they've been listening to him. They've heard everything he's said, both in private and in public. They've witnessed his miracles. They've seen the confrontations. And over the course of their time together, Jesus has repeatedly pointed out their lack of understanding about who he really is. Jesus speaks in parables and they miss the point. He makes claims about himself and they don't get it. And now on the night before his death, their last night together, they finally begin to see. They think they've finally figured Jesus out. Look at verse 29 again. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. The the disciples, they're saying this with, with an amount of pride. That after all this time, they finally get what Jesus is up to. But Jesus' response is telling, verse 31. He asks, do you now believe? This is asked with sarcasm, with with irony. In verse 32, we see what he wants them to know. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. You see, the disciples, they have such confidence in their belief. They think they finally understand Jesus, but their claim about What they understand is not so much a statement about what they believe about Jesus, but what they believe about themselves. And Jesus is able to see past their words. And he says that their belief, what they possess in this moment, is not enough to sustain them when the crisis comes. A crisis is coming. Jesus is alluding to the time that's coming in just a few hours when he will be arrested and handed over to the authorities And who of the disciples is going to stand with Jesus then? None of them will. You should know that the disciples are a reflection of you and me. We often think we understand who Jesus is and what he's doing. And we think that we'll be faithful when a crisis comes. But how often is our faith merely a theoretical faith. We might profess Christ, but when things get difficult or or when temptation is strong, what will we really do? What will we do when it seems like God isn't coming through for us? 
when our life isn't going the way we want it to go? How will we respond when it doesn't make sense to continue believing in a good and wise God? What does our faith really look like when the crisis comes? One thing that this pandemic has done for us is it's chipped away at the facade that we've put up. It's revealed or will eventually reveal to us where our faith has really been all along. We may have convinced ourselves that our faith is strong, that it's genuine, but is it really? Some diagnostic questions. How much have you prayed in these past couple of weeks? How did you react when you saw your portfolio drop 30% last week? Do you despair when you read the news? Who have you turned to for assurance and comfort in this past week? How will you answer these questions? And I ask these questions not to make us feel guilty. This has been a really difficult couple weeks for all of us and we should never make anyone feel bad for how they cope but I think that we have to ask ourselves where our faith really lies this pandemic will reveal to us whether or not we really believe what we confess Jesus says in our passage that in this world you will have tribulation The word tribulation is derived from a Latin word for the flail, the flail that's used to separate the wheat from the chaff. Now, remember that Jesus is speaking into an agrarian society, so they're familiar with with the, the, the separation between wheat and chaff. And the work of a flail, it's, it's harsh, it's severe, but it's done with purpose, with intent. That means that tribulation always has a purpose. And God has a purpose for the tribulation that we're in now. It's to reveal to us what is wheat and what is chaff in our life. God is stripping us of the things that we value. And maybe those things that we value, maybe they're chaff. In this tribulation, God is refining us like a goldsmith. Listen to these words from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-7. through 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, how can we know if our faith is real unless it's been tested? But when our faith has been tested, when we feel the sting of the flail, then we will become more of who God intends for us to be. On to our second point, a real belief. So is your faith tested or untested? A faith that's untested is simply a systematized collection of propositions. It's merely a philosophy. And this is the reason I think some of us are able to look at the Christian story and 
remain unmoved because we approach it as something merely to be studied. Maybe it provides an explanation for some things in the world. Maybe it gives good guidance for behavior modification. And maybe it's even inspiring at times. And, and all these things can be appreciated even if we don't follow Jesus. But of course, there are, there are also things about the faith that are off-putting to many people. The demand to love our enemies. The biblical understanding of other religions. The Christian approach towards sexual ethics. The Bible's view of economics or justice or war. And the sentiment of many people is that until they can see that Christianity's teachings will align with their own preferences and their own opinions, they can't accept it. But what Jesus has been telling us in the Gospel of John is that until you believe in him, until you trust in him first, none of the other things will make sense to you. It might be great if you subscribe to a, G- a Judeo-Christian worldview. I think it's great if you adhere to biblical ethics, and I'm glad that even non-Christians can appreciate these things. But Jesus is interested in far more than that. The only way that Christianity can be a coherent thought system is if Jesus really is who he says he is. And if he isn't, then we can disregard the Bible. We can push aside the Christian story as just another option in the catalog of worldviews. But what if Jesus is who he says he is? What if his claims are true? Then we need to make a decision. Will we reject him or will we follow him? And the thesis I want to put before you today is this, that in order for us to withstand the troubles of this world or the troubles of even this pandemic, we need to look to Jesus because only Jesus can give us the deep peace that we need. Jesus must be central to our understanding of reality. Any attempt to find peace or stability apart from him, they might be helpful, but they're only temporary and they're ultimately shallow. So if we want peace, if we want this deep peace, we must reckon with the person of Jesus, not a set of beliefs, not a group of propositions, but with the person of Jesus. Let me propose something to you. We gravitate toward advice or words of comfort that resonate, that already resonate with what we believe or what we want to believe. We call this confirmation bias. In general, people listen to other people that they already agree with. We accept things that reinforce what we already believe. This is true of everyone, uh, whether you're, you are Christian or non-Christian. We want the path of least resistance. We want someone that will validate us and affirm us. But when we approach Jesus, there's always a challenge. There's always a challenge. There's a challenge to our perception of our own goodness. There's a challenge to our own solutions or our ingenuity. 
There's a challenge to our perception of reality. There's a challenge to how we regard others. And if you approach Jesus and it doesn't make you uncomfortable, if it, if it doesn't unsettle you, then maybe it's not really Jesus that you've encountered. Maybe it's something that you've fashioned according to your own preferences. Notice what Jesus says about himself in verse 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus is saying four things here. When he says, I came from the Father, he's saying he is pre-existence. When he's saying, I have come into the world, he's saying he is God incarnate. When he says, I am leaving the world, he's referring to his death. When he's saying he's going back to the Father, he's talking about his intercession. Verse 28, one sentence, and this statement is astonishing. In this one sentence, Jesus says so much about his ministry and about who he is. And this is who he is. From eternity past, he was one with God the Father. This is his pre-existence. There was no time when Jesus did not exist. Jesus created the world and mankind. And when man fell and was separated from his creator, he was doomed to an eternity without the pleasure and smile of God. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son to us. This is the doctrine of the incarnation, that God became man to live among us and to rescue us. Jesus came incarnate for our sake, and Jesus would die for the rebellion of man, and he received the death that man had earned. When he did this, Jesus took on our sin. He received the punishment and the suffering that we earned for ourselves, In exchange, we receive the perfection and the righteousness of Jesus, and we will never be condemned. We will never be condemned for the wrong that we've done. This is the death of Christ. This is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That is amazing. And yet, Jesus' ministry does not end there. Jesus says he goes back to the Father. He's going back to the Father where he now sits at the right hand of the Father, and he's always advocating for us. He's always interceding on our behalf. He's always working for us. This is the doctrine of intercession. Jesus as the mediator. He is our priest. Now, this is what is true of Jesus. And to believe in Jesus is to believe in, in the totality of who he is. To believe in all that he's done. To believe all his frustrating statements and all his difficult teachings is to believe his demands for total allegiance from us. And here's what we must understand. That until we accept Jesus fully, even the difficult things about him, our faith will be a flimsy faith. It will not sustain us when the crisis comes. It will not be enough when the temptation is strong. Jesus says that he must be the object of the disciples' faith if they are to have peace, if they are to withstand the crisis. That's why he says, I have spoken these things to you so that in me you might have peace. You have to 
pull out those two words, in Jesus alone, we might have peace. And the peace that we're talking about today can be found only in Jesus. So how can we have this peace? Our final point, the peace that Jesus offers. So Jesus tells his disciples, take heart, take heart. This phrase is translated from the Greek word tharseo, which means to dare, to dare. The Bowers lexicon translates the word this way, the phrase this way, to be firm or resolute in the face of danger or adverse circumstances. So when Jesus says take heart, it's not just an encouragement. This is an imperative. This is something that we have to do in order to have the peace that Jesus offers. He's saying there needs to be a response to what I'm saying. We have to do something daring. And it's to trust Jesus wholeheartedly. It's not just to believe in his existence. It's not just to acknowledge him when things are going well. But to take heart means that we lean everything we are on him when it's most difficult to do. Notice how Jesus puts it in these verses. He says, in this world you will have tribulation. He doesn't tell us to downplay the trouble. Because it's in the context of tribulation that peace will come. Peace is not the absence of trouble. But it's in trouble that we can have peace. Jesus says he speaks these things to us so that in him we would have peace. Imagine this. Imagine that you're climbing on rocks on a beach and you're having a good time. And suddenly, out of nowhere, a storm appears and the winds howl and the waves crash upon the rocks. And at this point, it's too late for you to run back to the sand on the beach. You have nowhere to go and you think you're doomed because the storm is becoming more powerful. The wind is stronger than you thought it was initially. You think you're doomed. And then about 20, 25 feet away, you see a cleft in the rock, large enough to hold you. And you, you scramble up and you go inside. And at the same time, the wind and the waves become stronger and more violent. And wave after wave pounds on the rock. And at times, the rock is completely submerged by the water. And to someone observing from the outside, it, it might even seem like there is nothing but water. The water has swallowed up everything in its path. But when the storm subsides and the waves pull back, you're still there. And even though it was scary at times, you knew that the rock was immovable. And as long as you stayed in the safety of that cleft, you knew you would be safe. You were in the storm, but while you were in the storm, you were in the rock. When Jesus says, take heart, he's telling us to dare believe that he will be that rock for you. And how can we be so daring? How can we take heart? Jesus gives us the basis of our belief in verse 33. He says, I have overcome the world. 
throughout the Gospel of John and throughout the New Testament, we see how Jesus has overcome the world. These are just some of the ways. In John 1, he says that he is the light that has overcome the darkness. In John 12, he has defeated the ruler of this world, Satan. Matthew 8, he controls all nature. He will not be defeated by disaster or even by coronavirus. 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus has defeated sin and death. John 20, Jesus has conquered the grave. Colossians 2, he has conquered every ruler and authority. And Romans 8, all troubles and all sorrows are subservient to him. There is no situation that he will not use for your good. Jesus has all authority. He has no equal. He has overcome all that has been and all that ever will be in this world. Now, would you dare trust someone like that? If you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to think about how you can use this season, however long it is, to to dare something, to do something costly. Use this season as a season to develop and strengthen your faith and trust in him. Because this is what it means to take heart, to give yourself completely to Jesus because you believe his promises and you believe specifically his promise that he has overcome the world. I know at this time it's tempting to look to other people or other things to help us deal with the stress and anxiety of this time, you might be doubting the goodness of God right now. You might be wondering how you can worship or obey Him while everything is falling apart. And yet, this is the time when you must learn to trust fully in Him. This is the time in tribulation, find your peace and safety and joy in Jesus alone. In the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis imagines letters from a senior demon named Screwtape to his nephew demon. Uh, His name is Wormwood, in which the senior demon, he teaches his nephew how to tempt human beings. And I'm going to read to you a portion of a letter in which Screwtape is teaching Wormwood how to tempt believers when it seems like God isn't doing anything in in their life, when it seems like God just isn't working the way that we want him to work. So this is the letter, and as I read, to, read this letter to you, this portion of the letter, remember that these are demons writing to each other. So the he in this uh, letter is God. When they refer to the enemy, this is God. And this is what Screwtape writes to Wormwood. Sooner or later, he withdraws, referring to God. If not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand, And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. 
our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. I agree with Screwtape. I agree with him that God is most pleased with us when we continue to obey him and worship him, even when it seems like he's withheld his hand of blessing from our lives. Even when the flail upon our life is painful, when we can receive that pain, when we can receive that tribulation from the Lord and still bless God, this is your act of worship. This is your offering to the Lord. This pandemic is awful. I wish it never happened. I wish you wouldn't have to suffer. And we as a church will weep with you. We're not going to minimize your suffering or your sadness. But God will use even evil for your good. Indelible Grace Church, do not waste this time. Because it's in this time of trouble that you will find peace if you will dare believe the promises and the character of Jesus. So press into the Lord. Bring your sadness to Him. Train yourself to worship Him even when it hurts. Obey when you have no desire to obey. Pray even though you feel dry. And at the end of the season, your faith will be more precious than gold. You will see more of Jesus. You will understand more fully what it means to have peace and joy in Him. And out of your heart will flow rivers of living water to a world dying of thirst. This is the promise that Jesus has overcome the world. Find your peace in Him. Will you pray with me? Father, we tremble we tremble before you, knowing that we have no control over anything. We have no control over this tribulation. But you've promised us peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can hide in him, in the cleft of the rock. Even though the storm is violent and raging, and God, even for those of us in the, us in the church who right now are having such a difficult time, we acknowledge that this is painful and scary. But God, we ask that you would give us your strength and peace as we said in the call to worship. Bless your people with your peace and I pray that you would do that for us, that we would be receptive. I pray that you would shape the people of IGC for your good, for your glory, for our good, God. Now do your work in our church. Bring peace to us through the Prince of Peace. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.